You are listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads are woven to create and execute a play? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this special episode, a roundtable discussion via Zoom about the play Eleanor and Alice, featuring playwright Ellen Abrams, director Francis Hill, and Tony Award winner Trenzini Beverly as Eleanor Roosevelt, and Drama Desk's Sam Norton Award winner Mary Bacon as Alice Roosevelt Longworth. And everybody, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you. Thank you. So I have an origin story. And it goes way back when a young man in the early days of my television program, Davidson and Company, came into the studio to talk about his first book, his novel, Sometimes You See It Coming. I think this is going to be about Kevin. And I'm going to mention quickly because there's a connection here. And um, he was very generous. And after the episode, after the interview was over, he gave me a list of all his writing friends and contacts. And then over the years, he stayed in contact with me. And I have, that I treasure to this day, a very special letter he sent to me that I've kept. So recently, Kevin Baker, who's married to the playwright, said, my wife has a new play coming out. Can you please talk about that? I said, I'll do more than talk about that. I'll go to watch it. And we'll set up a whole special episode of the podcast, Artful Periscope. So, Ellen Abrams, hope I didn't embarrass you. I don't know if you heard that story before, but I respect Kevin greatly. He is one of the best in the business. And therefore, he said, Larry, please do something to talk about my wife's play. I said, that's a no-brainer. That's nice of you. So, Ellen Abrams, tell us about how you came to this topic about Eleanor and Alice Roosevelt Longworth, because it's a fascinating look back in history. So how did it come to you? Well, I I, I hate to say that after your encomia about Kevin, but it was Kevin who suggested it. Oh, there you go. Um, He knew I was very interested in Eleanor Roosevelt, and um, we are people who are just interested in history and FDR, particularly for whatever reason. And um, I'd been reading about her and he said, you know, you might want to write a play about Eleanor. And I thought, yeah, I might want to write a play about Eleanor. And so I just started doing research and a lot of reading and buying used books and uh, looking online. There's an Eleanor Roosevelt archive. There's uh, Alice has written, wrote, wrote her memoirs. Um, very early, like in the thirties. Um, well, I guess, how old she, well, she was, I guess in her forties. Um, and, uh, there's just, there's a lot of information on both of them. Few pictures. Interesting. There's one photograph extant. Maybe there used to be tons of Eleanor and Alice very young and that's it together. Um, and that's it of them together. There's many pictures of, uh, Alice, I almost said Mary, of Alice uh, with tons of other people. And, of course, of Eleanor with many, many tons of other people. But it was so, it's a, you know, in a way, it's an evergreen in terms of subject matter. I don't think as much as you could explore these two women, you could never explore them enough. And uh, we're just trying to give a little sort of little mini walk through the 20th century with these two extraordinary women, even historical writers that we know 
don't know a lot about Alice. She lived forever, but she was of less and less consequence as time went on and as Eleanor and FDR superseded the other side of the Roosevelt's in importance and in historical significance. So this is a podcast for storytellers, and a lot of people earn a living by the use of words. When you see your words spoken on stage with, well, in rehearsals, but certainly with in front of an audience, what is your reaction to that? I, I hate to sound like the biggest cliche monger in the world. It is amazing. <laughs> it is so great. When I was younger, of course, as many people who are interested in theater do, I thought I wanted to be an actress. And of course, course now i know that would have been a very terrible idea but um but uh as a writer good god you can do so much and even when i listen to it now uh the upteenth time i sit there and go can't believe i wrote this (laughs) people are saying my words people i did not know prior to this event are speaking my words and you know like everyone i wish my parents were alive to you know hear it but um my siblings have heard it and other relatives and dear friends and distant friends. And uh, I, I just, you know, I'm a pretty verbal person, but um, to hear other people speaking my words is, you know, extraordinary is the only so, the limited way I can uh, say it. So over the course of my career, certainly this podcast, we'd like to explore the art and craft of storytelling. And I think there's a certain rhythm to storytelling. Now, when you write, do you write with a rhythm? Because certainly on stage, and we'll talk to all the other principals, there is definitely a rhythm in this play. So in your head, is there a rhythm when you sit down to write? Yes. A lot of it, I was realizing, a friend of mine saw it the other day with me, and she said, particularly for Alice, she said she sounds really a lot like you. And I thought for a minute, yeah, she really does. And uh, there's, um, whether purposely or unconsciously, I tend, if it's, if there's something sort of, you know, snarky to be said, right. uh, I, I sort of pull it out from my own sort of snark basket and it becomes very like something I might say, hopefully not as, as Alice, but may, maybe just as nasty as Alice. So, yes, I do sort of uh, turn to myself for like how I would uh, um, articulate a line and how I would uh, 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 repeat a comeback or and like, I, you know, how it is. I'm sure, you know, you play both parts in your head and, um, you know, sometimes I'm Alice and sometimes I'm Eleanor and sometimes I'm tragic Eleanor and sometimes I'm snarky Alice and you know, you're just sort of trying to get out what is part of you onto the stage, that as long as it it, it uh, coincides with what your characters need to do. Right. Francis Hill, we had a nice conversation the other day. You were kind enough to spend some time talking to me and my daughter. So I'm going to assume we don't know anything about the role of the director at your theater urban stages. So basically, what is your part in all of this? Everybody knows the word director. But what is your responsibility? Well, first of all, <laughs> I have to say that, you know, Urban Stages is free submission. So anybody can submit a play of theirs to our theater. And I opened this envelope and there was this play called 
Eleanor and Alice. And I began reading it. And a lot of times I only get by the, oh, the first 20 or 25 pages. But this play really caught my eye. And I thought, these are fabulous characters. And she's really put a lot of humor in this play. And these women are so opposite. And they're different parties, different um you know, different political views. And I thought, and it, and I think I read it sort of before COVID around and I thought this is so timely. And then of course COVID happened and, and I, we did do a reading of the play, I believe with Eleanor. So this is the system in urban stages. People submit plays. We read them. We decide what plays we're going to concentrate on. And, and I have to say that Ellen's play hit the top ring. And uh, so my part as an artistic director is to really find the material that speaks to our, our mission statement, which Ellen's play does. And then to answer your question as a, <laughs> a director is one, you have to select excellent actors, which I did. These ladies are crackerjack in their feel and wonderful organic actresses, and they automatically found something within both of them that they could communicate. And that was my luck as a director. So you said something I want you to expand on. How, what defines an organic actor? And I, I want to follow up with that because a lot of times we see they're actresses. But it seems like if you t- describe somebody as an actor, you're almost elevated in the pantheon of being on stage. Qu- really qual- high-quality, talented people, m- whether they're men or women, are actors. So what does it mean to be an organic actor? Well, it's it's almost a technique. And, and these actresses work from inside themselves in the moment. So and they, do, they do not have line readings of, of, of lines where they imitate it every time they come on. It's all organic. Every time they do this play, it's a little different or they hear something in the other person's response or other person's action and they respond a different way. And that to my definition is an organic actress. And you might even propose this question to them because they might have another side of what is an organic actress. I will do that. Thank you very much, because your insight's much better than mine. But I want to ask you one technical question. And I thought about this, because what works for me, if I go home and I'm up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I'm still thinking about what all you guys did, man, that's pretty powerful in terms of I'm thinking and thinking about that, because I have to shape the conversation. I'm more like a traffic cop, so I'm going to lean on you guys and not break the speed limits, but you can go anywhere that you want. When this play opens up, and this is this is, was unique in my mind, and I'm curious about your thought process. They make entrances throughout the whole play from behind the stage. The play opens up where Alice walks down the aisle onto the stage, and I thought that was really interesting. Glad you set it up that way. Well, because there the setting is the terrace at Sagamore. So obviously, and the opening line is the fact that Alice is not there on the terrace. And, she, and Eleanor has evidently come in from the house. So she didn't see her in the house and she's not on the terrace and she looks out and she doesn't see them. Evidently, Mary is out in the garden somewhere in the Sagamore pro- property. And she comes up fast and onto the stage. So it's the illusion that 
Mary was off somewhere else. Who knows what she was doing? That's another question. But she was late to, to her appointment with Eleanor. And we put her coming through the theater as if she was coming through the garden. All right. So I'm going to turn it over to the very talented people that I saw on stage. First, so let's start with Trezana. Let's talk about, I hate the word process, but Frances said organic acting. Share your thoughts about what you do as an actress in general and how you prepared for this role as Eleanor Roosevelt, which is a fascinating woman in terms of American history. Mm-hmm. And even now sure. we're, still discar- we're still learning things about her. But can you talk sure. about that a little bit, please? Well, you know, I mean, at first it start, starts off with learning lines and understanding relationships, the relationship that uh, Eleanor had had with uh, Alice, and uh, in this case, but in reality, uh, uh, there was a, um, a very uh, uh, intense relationship between these two women in that Alice did not really like Eleanor. She evidently was very jealous of Eleanor. But in this play, uh, Ellen has put these two women together and it, it then becomes incumbent upon me as Mary's stage partner to uh, find the relationship that can make the script work. It all starts with the word, you have to respect the word, you have to respect the playwright, and then work with the director to understand why you are saying those lines, what is the relationship between the two people on the stage, and one of the things that I really, really enjoy working with Mary Baker is that uh, Mary is very generous. Um, You know, uh, there are all kinds of actresses, and quite frankly, what you see on stage is our humanity. Wow, okay. You see who we are, and uh, Mary and I get along, and but she is um, she's very generous and kind, and so am I. And I think that synergy expresses itself on stage when you see the two of us work like this. So, Mary, that's interesting that Trisana described you that way because your character on stage is kind of well snarky. Can it's beyond snarky? She can be mean. She can be cruel. She can be very self-centered, but that made a very fascinating portrayal of your role. What was your thought process? And one's in terms, you know, I've done some, a fair amount of things with independent filmmakers, and I always ask them about how their characters, scene partners, interact with each other. And we hear stories about major figures in Hollywood where they dominate, they eat, this, they eat scenes, so everybody focuses on them. You two guys interacted so well that we had to say what's really going on between these two characters. So your thought process about being involved in this play and working with a very talented woman. Well, first of all, I would say that um, a lot of times, like what whatever qualities that uh, people see in me in order to play a part, I may not see in myself. Like, I don't feel like I'm an Alice Roosevelt at any rate, but I have played characters like her. Not solely. I've also played very sympathetic characters. Um, but when I take on a character, I am their best advocate. 
That's my job. I feel like as an actor, I'm their advocate. I'm their only advocate. And so I have to fight for what they want. So I really, um, just like a matter of not judging them as snarky or as ungenerous or, you know, there's just, there's, I would call it unmet need. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, you know, but I, so I, and it's often shocking to me when I hear people say, well, she's so snarky. And I was like, but you know, for me, if you're Alice, she, yes, sometimes she is doing that, but she also is really honest. I'm provocative. I do it on purpose. I'm letting you know this, Eleanor, you know this about me. And there, there are people like that who are very refreshing to be around because they're so honest with themselves. Um, but as far as the thought process of working, I mean, Alice, you know, there were, there are like two moments in the play that, that are, were tough for me to understand what she was actually doing. But sometimes I also think that human beings don't always know why they lean in, like maybe right, why they, right. why they do something They like to see if something squirms, you know, like, um, or they feel like I should be feeling bad about this, but I don't, you know, and I think that's part of the human condition. I, th- I think no one is a saint and no one is, a, you know, I mean, there are people who are terrible people, but usually when I'm playing a character, it's very hard to, to do that and give them humanity. Um, but Alice is, a, it's actually, I'm going through like a really hard time in my life right now, personally. Um, and she's helping me. She gives me a lot of energy and I'm loving that house we had the other night, the last show we did was so into everything. Like they, you can't always go by an audience's what you hear, which is just laughter. Right. Because people might not know they're not laughing out loud or they, they they're, you're not, you're, I'm not aware of that as an audience member, but I could tell that people were really leaning into that about Alice. And then they came to depend on her over the play. Like, oh, by, you know, by the time I get to scene seven or eight, they, they, they can't wait to hear what her take is going to be on something because they know it's going to be, you know. But working with Eleanor, and this is, I think, Trezana and Eleanor and Trezana playing Eleanor, you know, we both, <laughs> we've, we talk to ourselves about how, how are we going to make this scene work? It doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't like, why would these two spend any time with each other? But also because this, what Ellen has done is she's like, these are all imaginary scenes. These never occurred. People will probably walk away thinking they did occur. They I will. did. I did. It was, that's how well done it was. I'm saying this really must have happened. Yeah. But because of that, um, there, there's something fantastic about it because I go, well, there is something that you get out of someone witnessing who you are and not trying to change you, not, not, not deciding that you're so, you know, like, I think that that is something that they give each other and in a way they can work out who they are in opposition to each other. Like, I think that Alice, cha- mine doesn't change. You know, she never <laughs> agrees with Eleanor, but she becomes more clear about who she is spending time with her opposite. And I feel, and I feel like that is what, the play kind of shows you. And I, the more I lean into that, the more like the scenes and, and Alice is very moved by Eleanor many times, right, right. many, many times, but it's not, um, she doesn't go, I'm going to go spend time with Eleanor to get moved, <laughs> you know, or they may not even know why they are spending time to get it, 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 There's, there's people in our lives like that. So I'm talking a lot, but yeah. I don't know if I even answered your question. Um, I, so I, you, I, I'm, I want to follow up on something you said. I think the really great interviewers know how to listen. 
And that's a gift, I think. Mm -hmm. I want to follow up what you just said. You said you're going through a very tough time right now. My question to you is, if you didn't have this play, would it be, this time be more difficult for you, whatever you're dealing with? Well, I'll share with you because my husband um, was a prominent member of the New York theater community, uh, Andrew Lindsay, and he died suddenly um, January 20th. And it was, uh, you know, Lee, um, very, it's a very tragic death, massive loss. Like I'm just starting to, you know, um, incorporate, you know, I really understand it. Really. It takes a while. So, but this play, Andrew saw it, you know, he saw it right in, in December. We, we had this first initial run and Alice loses everyone in her life over the course of this play. She like loses everyone, certainly that she counted on being there. And she loses elections, you know, she, you know, I'm very inspired by Alice because she stands up. She's still making jokes by the end of her life. Like she's, there's just, she's um, not undone by it. That has given me a lot of strength, actually. And I hope that would give other people strength um, in a way. Um, how you deal with what has happened to you, what it, it makes you. I, now, this is Ellen's portrayal of Alice. Right. right. <laughs> I'm sure other people hate Alice by the end of her life, but she is in there. She is in life. She is. That's very, um, that's been very helpful. Also, in addition to that, being around this group of women, and that's important to say that this is a female playwright, female director, two female actors playing roles um, of a certain age, um, but also our stage manager and our, um, uh, her, the ASM, they're both women. And there was just something very comforting and easy about coming into a smaller room like that, where we all knew each other. That made it much easier to do this. I don't think I could have done something bigger and where I, I and, and everyone knew my husband. And I mean, you know, not everyone here knew him in really well for a very long time, but knew what I was going through. And I didn't have to talk about it all the time. And it does inform your work. What, what you go through in your life informs your work. And I'm sure. So let me not. share something special, which I've talked about in the past. Both of my daughters, maternal grandparents, committed suicide. I think one of the most mm -hmm. powerful scenes in the play mm -hmm. is yours when you your daughter loses her life and it's intimated that, well, she probably committed suicide and you're saying, no, no, no. I watched that scene and you were off to my right at that particular point. And I'm just saying kudos to everybody involved, to Ellen and everybody else. That really touched me. And I think it reached the audience too, because you showed as an actress, and now maybe I'm understanding where some of that's coming from, a lot of real raw emotion, the loss of the life of that character, the daughter of the character that you play. It was very well done, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not blowing smoke at you, but it was really one of the high points of the whole play for me. Well, and I also think that you have, you have Eleanor who sits with her. I mean, that is like, she shows up. I, I just, it's a very, yes, that's what makes it a very moving scene. And I agree, it's very well written. Is Eleanor, who she is, being the one 
who can be there for Alice at that time, probably in a way that no one else could. And that's really significant in their relationship. That's like a foundational. Right, right. Yeah, that's what I, I, uh, I, I would agree because um, I am, I am very, very moved by the line, Alice, I know you are grieving. Please sit. How can I help you? Talk to me. This is as simple as that. To be a listener is so important. And listening on stage is crucial. And Mary and I do that with each other. And the other thing that I wanted to add before you before uh, you move on is there is humor. You know, when we did For Colored Girls, right. it was very, very easy to play that show for the anger. These were seven angry black women. But I remember our brilliant director saying to us, uh, you, you have to understand that these women loved these men. They invested themselves emotionally. And uh, with that investment of love and caring and concern, bring that on stage because that what was violated and you play it from the perspective of love. And that's why Eleanor and Alice work. We work as two actresses on the stage because we accept each other and we play it for the love, for the relationship, for the humor. Otherwise, the play could not, it would just be two angry women. I mean, they would want to know, why is Alice saying these things? And why doesn't Eleanor go upside her head? And then there would be a big <laughs> fight, you know, but it's not. And it shows the public that people of opposing ideologies can coexist. I think it's a beautiful model for our country and our world to see. And I, I hope and pray that this play goes further because our country needs to see that in a, in a big, big way. So let's just reset for a moment. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. We're having an in-depth conversation, hopefully in-depth. And these women are doing a great job about the play, Eleanor and Alice. Now, I, I have in my head um, internal dialogues that I never share. I'm probably more articulate inside my own brain than I am speaking to somebody in just in general life and certainly on, on these conversations and interviews. So I wonder if both the actresses can think, talk about this and whether or not this is accurate for them. While you're on stage and you're performing – and the dialogue is coming out of both of the conversation. Do you think that the characters you portrayed also at the same time have internal dialogues going on in their head? They don't want to say, but they're very thoughtful women. And I wonder, I'm, I'm talking, I'm interacting, but inside my head, there's other stuff going on that I'm self-editing. So I'll go back to Mary first. Do you think about that at all in your professional life and certainly maybe in your private life? Well, I mean, I think that I, I, I had this great, there's a great acting teacher, Ron Van Loo. And he's like, you know, the character's always trying to manage themselves. Like we're like, we are, they're just like, we are, you know? So you're managing yourself. What does that mean? So absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. You want to see it and you maybe push it down or you can get bored and get re back engaged. 
I could even think of it like just even on this conversation with you, like there's a, you know, I'm, my brain is firing off on all kinds of things. So hopefully you're not saying you're bored right now, but continue. <laughs> but I don't say everything that's going on and, 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 uh, and neither do just like as real people do, because they're just real people. So I would say yes. And of course, in my personal life, <laughs> for sure. But yes, I, I think that the closer you just remember that your character is a person, right? A person. It's not a god or, or, or it's not a it's not an iconic. It's, it's an actual person. You want to bring a person on stage, not a like a, a cardboard cutout of a person who doesn't feel and think and, you know, want to go to the bathroom and all those things. Cause, and as the actor, you're managing it at the same time. You got that additional layer where you don't just become the person. I mean, I don't really believe that anybody does that. Maybe, you know, people tried to do that, but it doesn't work very well. Cause at some point you're going to get the performance plays you after a while. And so, you are going to be thinking about doing the laundry in the middle. You know, it just happens. So that's, I just want to. I just want to mention two names, maybe three names, to challenge you. And I'm t- thinking about the world of movie making. Daniel Day Lewis, Gangs of New York is my favorite movie of all time. He's known for being that character, on screen, off screen, in preparation, probably in rehearsals and everything else. And I'm a big fan of Succession. Jeremy Jeremy Strong has the same kind of reputation. And the other name is Meryl Streep because Meryl Streep is a chameleon. She can be anybody. So I wonder, do you inhabit the character full time? And this is for both actresses. Or one, and I saw you at the end, I asked you guys for short interviews. We took short videos and you were walking off stage. Looked like you left everything behind because you were buzzing and you were getting out of there. So I wonder for both of you, do you live with the characters or you let them go? And I'll go back first to Drizana first and then response from Mary. Um, I absolutely leave my character in the dressing room, in the theater. I do not have time to take Eleanor home with me. (laughs) All right. Uh, I don't need that. And uh, when you talk about, you know, a character having other thoughts on stage, I teach acting. And, um, uh, you know, I'm always reminding my students, this is an art form. And we are our own instruments. We learn how to play ourselves with a script, which is basically a piece of music. And we learn how to apply it, give it nuance, and uh, find the dynamics in it. I do not have time when I am on stage to be thinking about laundry. I may think about what (laughs) I want to have for dinner when I'm putting on makeup. But if I do not focus... When I get on that stage with all the lines that Ellen has written for us to right, say right. and all of the interaction that has to happen on that stage, you better believe Miss Beverly has to be incredibly focused when she's on that stage. Because if I start thinking about now, I go in as I know how to put Eleanor on my body and in my voice and in my spirit. When I go on that stage and when I'm on that stage, I would say I'm pretty I'm pretty close to 100 percent there. I may, you know, drop a word or two, but basically I'm there. Then when I come off that stage, I put my instrument away and I can go home. So you just said you you teach and I'm a former teacher. 
elementary school teacher who worked with um, um, special education students. And it's one of the best mm-hmm. jobs I ever had. Yes, yes. And I'm a big supporter of teachers in general, that they are God's gift in a lot of cases because of what they do with young people. So when you're teaching, acting, can it be learned or it's intuitive and you just kind of mold the clay? Uh, you have, well, you know, you, you, it's very interesting because I was teaching freshman acting up at State University of New York uh, for a few years. And, uh, you know, you walk into a classroom of 19 students and you immediately ask yourself, who are the actors? Right. Because they're not all actors. And, uh, you know, after a few months, then you begin to see who the actors are. There is an acting talent. There is an acting gift. There's an acting DNA. Um, You know, some can work at it and uh, develop good craftsmanship. Uh, But those who have the natural talent, uh, you know, you, you just give them more tools to work with, and it's fun to shape them and see. Uh, you know, uh, but there are plenty actors who are making very good living um, who didn't necessarily have the great talent for acting, but they were good business people. Right. They knew how to network. They had a lot of charisma. They had a lot of personality. A lot of actors are very shy and inhibited people. And, uh, you know, they have to work a little harder. You have to work a little harder to get them out, you know. Uh, and quite frankly, a lot of people who have the acting gift, nobody will ever see or know about because the business is predicated on a lot of other uh, issues of excellence that, you know, you have to either learn how to do for yourself or you just have those skills automatically. So I'm going to go back to Ellen for a few moments that David Lean, who's the great British film director, said in a screenplay, if there's five great scenes, that's a really good screenplay. And I recently did an interview of the 50th anniversary, the way they were, with Streisand and Redford. And, and pretty much the conversation went around with the author of the book that Streisand had five great scenes. So, Ellen Abrams, when you're sitting down and writing, there's eight acts in this play. Um, were they all great scenes? And how did you shape the whole play? Because you need something to capture the audience's attention. So there's a rhythm to the narrative and it flows. So you don't want the audience sitting back, you know, okay, and then getting reengaged and disengaged. That's just me, my analysis as an amateur. So were there five great scenes for the actresses in your play? Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, uh, I wish there were. I think the last two scenes are very good. The first scene is good. Possibly uh, scene five is good. Um, uh, and uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, there's a lot of information that must be shared. And there are, I'm sure there are some who find some of the information sharing to be too didactic. Like uh, I was at a recent performance of it last week and it started with some, the first part is has some jokes and stuff. And, and then I thought there weren't laughs and I thought I've lost them. And then it revived in the second part. Right. And people were laughing appropriately and responding appropriately. So yes, 
<laughs> five scenes out of eight would be great scenes out of eight would be terrific yeah <laughs> i like to think that eight scenes out of eight are terrific here but um you know i'm the writer so as the writer i always look at people that are writing now whether it's fiction or nonfiction. they would do wi work in progress so is this play constantly a work in progress for you it seems to be each time we have a like it's had other uh, readings not full-out performances the way we've done at urban stages and at each at the readings we sort of um we didn't change that much we changed in rehearsal but not like right before the readings these iterations we've done much more work going back going back again going back again to make it clear. And then I, since this version, I've also gone back while it's, this is going on, I've gone back and did some other revisions on my own. So in a way, like there's this play that I'm having reading of tomorrow at the actor studio. I'm a member of one of their writing groups and this play I have revised. I have revised. (laughs) I have revised. And I revised. And still, I know there will be, I suspect there will be more revision. Once the reading happens, I suspect more revisions will be suggested by the critiquing. So I think for like really the prose, like I'm going back a bit, like Arthur Miller, I, I think he was very, like Arthur Miller was, this is my way, this is the play, this right, is it. Right. Nobody gets to revise. Tennessee Williams was more anxious about his work. So, you know, the famous scene, a famous story is when they're rehearsing Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. And in the original version, Big Daddy goes off and you don't see him in the rest of the second act. But Kazan, politically dubious though he might be, is um, was a great director. And he said, no, you got to bring Big Daddy back. You can't have him just leave. He's too big a character. And so Williams hemmed and hawed and said, well, yeah, I guess you're right. And of course, Big Daddy in the second act makes the play. So there's revisions. I think some writers revise all along the way. The short answer is some writers revise all along the way and some stop. And I guess I have to, um, right now, I'm at the point where yeah, I'm revising all along the way. All right, so I want to mention one of my favorite television programs of all time was Inside the Actors Studio with James Lipton. Uh, The classic episode, because I'm a huge fan of comedy, because comedians in many respects are truth tellers. I go back to Lenny Bruce. Was with Robin Williams. It was. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. I never got to see that. I recorded oh, it and man. never watched it. I would. I would love to find it because it was an hour program. It was on Bravo, and then Bravo yeah, started chopping right. it up with commercials. And then I believe Lipton passed away because I'm famous for all my cards. All my questions are on cards. Lipton had about a thousand cards. Yeah. And he was so well ready for anybody, but there must have been four or five hours of Robin Williams. Yeah, apparently they edited it down for. Edited, um, I would pay a fortune to have access to the four or five hours. So I know, th- would that be great? Uh, yeah. And so I learned a lot from, from the process. And he had a, he had the gamut of very famous people and people who were just stars, quote unquote. But it was yeah. great television. I want to go back to Francis, going back to your role as a director, and also you have an acting background. So 
Talk about how you set the whole play up, because what I liked, as we talked about the opening scene where Alice walks on stage, I like the videos. I'm a fan of history. I thought that was genius because it sets everything up. There are eight acts and it breaks. The, act, the actors can get off stage and then come back on. And I just like the simple music behind the videos. So talk about how you set that all up and what quote unquote stage direction is and your role in all of that. Well, I tell you, um, <laughs> you know, I will continue with what Ellen said about the process because the first attempt at this play was during COVID and we did a radio play and we realized that, you know, the ladies could be talking as in a radio play, but how could we sort of bring a little bit of the atmosphere in? So we had pictures of, of Sagamore and Val Kill. And then we decided that when, when the scenes changed, we would add a little bit about history. And this was this was on, um, you know, on a video. So so that's how it started. And, and the idea of creating the history as we go through 70 years, because, you know, as the audience sit there and watches what happened, some people don't remember about Cox running for president and who in the world is Cox. So we had sort of added a little bit about Cox in the video. And I have to hand it to Kim Sharp who, along with the help from Ellen, researched all of those cartoons, those political cartoons, all of those headlines, all of those pictures that you saw. They were all, you know, with through a lot of research. And I think they really add a lot to this type of a play when it's conversations through 60 years for the audience. So that's how it all, it sort of grew. I mean, and creatively through our various uh, our various different productions of Eleanor and Alice. So I want to go back to the actress, and, and anybody can respond to this question. I'm going to think about the movies, television, and then plays. I think you can make a case in terms of movies. It's a really the medium for the editor, the cinematographer, and the sense of director. Certainly in television, you know, it's basically the, the actors are there, but a lot of stuff is put back in the process of editing and everything else. I think the beauty of being on stage, it is the actor's medium. You're out there. You're speaking to us. It's in real time. I think this is where true acting comes into play. So I'll go back to Trisana, your thoughts about that. Am I off base in terms of the different mediums and who really controls that? Because I really think oh. what you do, you control the medium being on stage. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a tremendous, I mean, it's nothing, nothing against acting for film. I mean, that's a whole other genre. But all of it falls on the actor when you are on stage. I mean, Mary and I only have each other to make this play work. And it becomes uh, a ritual uh, between you and the other actors and the audience. It all falls on you. And, you know, there was a time when stage actors, I mean, communities used to wait for a particular actor to come to their town because they worshiped these people because they could command a stage 
hold an audience. They were great storytellers. They had great vocal dexterity, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And uh, I, I tell you the truth, you know, I look at a lot of stage acting right now and I'm going, that's not the real deal. Real stage acting is very, very hard, very hard to make it work. And um, I think because of film, um, a lot of actors have been allowed to get off easy. I find a lot of stage work, really film work, film acting, not real stage work. There, There is a difference. You mentioned a word that fascinates me, and I'll tell you why. It's a very simple word, but I have my own rituals to prepare for what I do. Right. So I, I kind of take it seriously. I don't take myself seriously, but I do take what I do seriously because I, I believe I have to service you guys and get your messages out there. So as an actor, what rituals do you have? Mary, you going to answer that? <laughs> well, you know, I think that's interesting um, because – you know, having worked for so many years, people have all kinds of rituals. For me, and I, I want to also like this thing about attention on, when you're on stage about thinking about laundry. I want to say that's not what my intention is to think about my laundry every night. Why I say that is because I, I want to make myself as open as possible for the character. That doesn't mean I go, you know, like I do tons of yoga before. I might do it dur- during the day. But I just, I try to let go of... Um, I don't know. By the time I'm putting the makeup on, I'm so her. I don't have to think about it so hard. That's my favorite time is when I know the script so well. I know the story so well that no matter what happens out there, it's something to play with as her. And uh, that is starting to happen as a, a, in a run that happens over time. And right now that's starting to happen with this play where it's really starting to really come for me performing it alive where it's not like I have to make sure things happen, that they will just happen and I just have to ride it. That's becoming, and I'm having more courage with that. But the ritual, I mean, <laughs> I mean I've heard some crazy, like I heard a ritual about Elizabeth. Um, yeah, so Elizabeth Ashley, she did a show at my husband's theater. <laughs> And this guy told me that she's smoking a cigarette backstage. You knew she's got that voice. And oh, I, I remember the voice. She, she was a she was a force of nature, though. She had a very unique personality. It was her ritual. Yeah. To smoke. You know, all, this is all to say not to judge any as better or worse than the other. Just as long as the actor does what works for them, because it's it's such a it's so hard to say. It's such a spiritual thing, right? <laughs> she would just like go. She would say to whoever was back there. She'd say foot. And then she would throw the cigarette on the ground. They would step on it and she would walk on stage. I worked with Judith Light, who would get ready an hour before um, in her in her character. She was so, that was her thing. She really took her time. I'm a little more rushed, but I don't feel any less centered or grounded in the character. As long as I've done all my work before. But I love acting so much. I don't think of it as work. When, when I have an impulse or interest in something, I'm going to follow it. When something doesn't make sense in a script, I have to know why. And I have to know, I want to know what the character is trying to do. For, I guess that's kind of a ritual. But in terms of, I, I mean, really half hour, we have, a, you know what half hour is. You're called, they say half hour. And that's when the actor has to be there right. getting right. ready to right. go on. And that's a, that is a built-in ritual to all um, theater. That's, that's required by our union. And so whatever you do with that half hour, whether you spend that whole time putting on makeup or whether you spend it, you know, whatever, that's your, so um, 
I haven't really told you any of my rituals, really. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody wants to keep their secrets. That's fine. I, I, work, I work with a lot of athletes. In terms of athletes, there's something called the sweet spot of time. In other words, you could be running for an hour and a half and not even be cognizant of. You may think it's five minutes. And in terms of the world of acting, this player beyond, is there a sweet spot of time? You were, The audience is kind of aware of time going by. But are you as actresses in your professional life, are there sweet spots of time when you're on stage? You're, I mean, you know the running time of the play. You know the TRT. But in, in real life, sometimes, you know, we're a little bored with this, the, the day is dragging. But when everything is going well, there is what I call the sweet spot of time. I'll go back to Trezana. Can you kind of just kind of figure that my question out for everybody else? Because I think in terms when I have my own sweet spot of time, I'm just kind of floating through. I'm not even cognizant of what's going on around me. I'm just very relaxed. I really don't know how to answer that. In all, in all honesty, no, because I, I, I mean, I, I would say that, uh, you know, when I, when we're, we're into the second half of the play, uh, you know, uh, when we get up to, and Francis likes this scene as well. It's the Sputnik scene. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. That, that seems to be, there's something about that scene, and maybe it's the humor of it. I don't know, but there's something about that scene that seems to uh, it, the, the play pivots on for me. And uh, you know, you know, we know that we're almost reaching the end of it, but it's something important about that scene and what occurs in it. I think because it leads into that uh, that that last scene about you know, I I, I must say when I look at uh, Alice from the back and she says, "How long do they say the Sput- Sputnik will stay up there?" and I say, ninety eight minutes," and I just watch this character who has been overwhelmed by loss right and i really watching mary from the back i i must say i just i'm always moved by that moment and uh you know it it sort of the play sort of jumps over into another world spiritually emotionally for me i mean that's that's sort of the way i would answer that so in, in real world, because there has I can hear people reacting to what's going on and thinking about what's going on today in terms of geopolitics in their own life. And there's a phrase that I think about called detente. And at the end of the play, both of you clasp hands. And in my mind, in my mind, that being said, that is detente between both of your characters. Mary, would you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's in the script. It's written that they grab hands, although it's originally how Ellen wrote it is that they grab hands before they recite the poem. And that didn't for some reason that just didn't organically happen. Um, but what I like about it, that it's at the very end. It's just like that's how it's like it makes it actually even more important right. and less right. not just sweet, but actually hard one. And um which, you know, that, that symbolizes union, that symbolizes a lot of things, a lot of things. And it's, and it's, and it's easy at that point to grab uh, Eleanor's hand for me, you know. Um, yeah. And I think that that's, 
that's where she's going. And that for it to be that for it, this, I love this, this phrase, you know, for it to be, for it to feel inevitable, you know, like that's like you get there and you go, well, of course, but at the beginning of the play, you would never think these two would ever come to that right. point. And I, I also want to say something about what you said about that sweet spot of time, because this is what I feel about all theater and my favorite time on stage and why it is different from film or TV is that you are breathing with the audience at the same time. And when you know a piece well enough, you don't have to, what I'm, I, you don't have to think about how to execute this. You, you can just trust it. You can ride it. And, and that is also at that moment in the play where there's just, we're all on the same, we're all breathing together. I, don't, I doubt anyone's very bored or, or thinking about anything else when they're, when we're talking about loss like that. Yes. And the audience and the, and the characters, and I always feel like I'm breathing at the same time as them. The information is hitting Alice at the same time it's hitting the audience. That's my favorite time on stage where time doesn't feel like it obeys its rules anymore. It's just, um, you don't know how long that is or how short it is. And I want, that's my kind of play. I want people to see this play because I think one of the subtexts, whether it was meant to be or not, is the very sense, the sense of loss. All the characters feel a sense of loss. And I think everybody in the audience can relate to that. But you all go through periods of our time where we're dealing with loss. Mary, you just said about that, the loss of your husband, which is still very and very visceral and very deep inside of you. That That's part of the play. And the characters address have to address a sense of loss. So before I let all of you go, I'm going to ask each of you for your final thoughts. Take it anywhere you want. We'll, start, we'll go back to where we started with Ellen Abrams. Ellen? These actresses do an incredible job of bringing these two people to life. So many people, even now, have a vague sense of Eleanor, but hardly anybody anymore has any sense of Alice. And to see them working together as two fine, great actresses bringing back to life these two extraordinary people is something audiences seem to love. I love it. Um, it's a beautiful thing to watch, um, to watch history in the making, um, a kind of a cousinly romance breaking right. apart, coming back together. And of course, the sort of events of the 20th century um, being displayed and the, the direction and the artistic direction is just delightful, but a better word. Um, it just, the whole thing is a, a beautiful unity of, of expression, I think, and an expression of the words I am using and the emotions I was hoping to evoke. Uh, Francis, your final thoughts? Yes, I, you know, my job after I've, it's all up on the stage and so forth. And I sit there in the audience and I really love watching how every different audience will react to the beautiful work that those, that the actresses are doing on the stage to these characters that really Ellen has created. And as Mary said, this live theater is the all breathing in the same room. And I actually love looking at the audience. I mean, looking at the audience and feeling them concentrating and feeling them listening and feeling them laughing and feeling them crying or being very insular in their emotions. And that to me is the real beauty of the theater. And I thank, I thank Mary and Trezana and, 
Ellen for all of the work they're doing at Urban Stages, and it is a joy. So I want to thank you so much for this podcast. I want to tell. I don't want to embarrass you, <laughs> but when I was there a few days ago, a woman comes into the theater and says, "Can you please not start yet? My friend is outside trying to find a parking place for her car." And you waited for her friend to come after she parked her car. And I love the way you interact with the audience. And that to me also said, boy, this is going to be a lot of fun because you're standing there and you're, you're, waiting, you're waiting for people to come. But you held off the performance till this woman's friend came and you got her seated and then the play started. So I wanted to let the audience, everybody listening to this podcast, you are a gift also to this whole process and performance right. and putting this play That's together. Right. So, Francis, uh, thank right. you for that, because you really are connected to the people who are going to be watching this very special play. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, Trezana, you're next up, my friend. Final <laughs> thoughts? Oh, my goodness. To 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 have the honor of uh of playing uh, Eleanor Roosevelt on stage uh, and being a woman of color, I am just to so uh, encouraged and grateful that uh, uh, Francis and uh, Vincent, what is Vincent's last name, Francis? Scott. Vincent Scott uh, had the, the idea, uh, vision to cast me in this role. It's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. It's a wonderful play. I am having so much fun out there on stage. I really am enjoying myself, and I just love the challenge of it. Uh, you know, you know it. I, I guess those of us who make it look easy, you know, it's it's work. And um, you know, uh, I love the spiritual essence of this play. Right, right. Ellen has included uh, scripture in this play. She's included concepts of love. Uh, that are universal and totally spiritual. And uh, I do believe that there is such a, a message to be gained by a larger public seeing this play. And, uh, and of course, the, the pleasure of working with Mary on stage, because as I say, you know, that it's just the two of us up there. And uh, it says a lot for two ladies who can get up there and uh, make this play work with a lot of love and a lot of generosity of right. spirit and technique. That that's that's a joy. That's a joy. So one last question for you. Are you going to be doing Shakespeare? Oh, I just finished doing King Lear. You know, I, I did Lear as a man out at um, uh, Southwest Shakespeare Theater. Yeah, so Absolutely. All right. I love, I love, I love Shakespeare. All right, so you get to be the anchor, Mary. You get to be the anchor. Final thoughts. Final thought. Well, what should I say except that, um, you know, we don't often get actors. Sometimes we just don't get to hear from audience members. You know, like I'll ask Francis what people are saying. You know, what they feel. So, um, but <laughs> I did have my financial advisors. <laughs> <laughs> And she loved it. And she was so, and she was so intrigued by it. She ended up reading all about Alice and found this interview with her in like 1973. And um, I think that, um, I think Francis will hold the seat. No, I'm just kidding. We don't want to encourage the, the audience members not to park their cars on time. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but to know that it's this, this, um, yeah, I, I don't think anyone who want, is remotely interested 
will have a good time. And then someone who may not know anything about these ladies will have a good time and it will be moved. And um, I don't know what else to say. Like, come see the play. We'd love to have you. All right. This has been a special edition of the podcast, Arthur's Periscope. We're talking about Eleanor and Alice, conversations with two remarkable Roosevelts. Four women on this podcast are also very, very special. I want to thank you one and all for joining us. It's been thank an you, honor Mike. for me. Thank you. And I look forward to getting the word out. The play started April the 5th. It runs April 30th. I think you can go to urbanstages.org for ticket information. Please go see this play. You'll see these remarkable women. You'll be right on top of them. I hope they don't mind that. They're not claustrophobic. But when you see the way they act and react is worth the price of the mission. I'm Larry Davidson. Till next time. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tired to her kitchen chair. She